Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome to the wheelhouse. On a scale of 1 to 10, he's going to hit a 10 on every nice guy mark until he gets out on the mound. And then he's going to chew you up, and he doesn't really let you go. Starring Jerry Depoto. And Jerry Depoto to the plate with the 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. With Aaron Goldsmith. To see what he's done this year, Jerry, to just despise walking guys even more than he did last year, to work the edges of the plate better than any starting pitcher, maybe better than any pitcher, period, in Major League Baseball. And Gary Hill Jr. That's Aaron's only way of scouting. He doesn't care about anything else. (laughs) (laughs) How they look coming off the bus. Man, oh man. It's time for the Wheelhouse. Here's Aaron. Welcome once again. It is the Wheelhouse Podcast. It is our first in-season podcast in 2021. And Jerry, it's great to be with you. It's great to see you. Happy, uh, Happy New Year to you. Wow, happy new year. It's, it seems so far past new year. Well, new baseball a, year, Jerry. Oh, new baseball yeah. year. There's, I, was, I, was getting, I wasn't as nuanced as you were <laughs> in my presentation. It's good to see you, man. I haven't, uh, when have I seen you last face-to-face? It's been a long time. Uh, I, I feel like inadvertently, it might not be face-to-face, but it's something over a Zoom. It's something while we're, we're on a, a, a program like this uh, in pregame for, for Root. But it is, uh, it's not as often as I would like it to well, be. Well, the feeling is mutual. And uh, we... Man, we are almost to the uh, finish line of the first month of the season. We are right about there, and it's there's been a lot of good things happen for the Mariners. I think one thing that has continued uh, from last year to this is it seems like the Mariners' uh, schedule has been maybe at its most difficult right out of the gates, just like we saw last year. Which I think makes the start we've been off to all the more exciting. You know, there's so many things that have not gone particularly well for us. You know, in terms of, you know, sustainable performance. But if you would have told me going into the season that we were going to wake up nearing the, the final month of the season with a record such as we have and, and played the schedule that we have played, that's pretty remarkable. We've had unquestionably the most difficult schedule in Major League Baseball during the month of April. And we've managed to hang in there against teams that, that frankly, when we were leaving spring training, most didn't think we were going to be able to go toe-to-toe with. And the fact that we have is very encouraging. You uh, have gotten used to life not on the road. Uh, you got used to it last year. Uh, but as a, as a general manager, is this an, an odd thing, a strange thing for you to do? Or do you just find yourself pulling up onto the couch each and every night when the team's out of town? Uh, I am pulling up onto the couch <laughs> when the team's out of town, which is new and unique. You know, this is the longest I've ever gone in my professional baseball life without traveling, uh, whether it be with a team or out on some kind of scouting you know, endeavor or going out to see minor league affiliates. Uh, it's been very unusual. And, you know, I'm quite ready to start traveling with the club again. And 
Um, you know, hopefully we can get to that point from a protocols perspective, and and I think we are nearing that point. But you know, watching the team at home, it's it it has its rewards. You you can see a lot on a on a TV broadcast in in today's time that frankly you don't really get to see from the box we're given at a ballpark or or when you're sitting in in a seat you know, 20 rows back and buying home plate. There is some some advantage to it from a scouting perspective. Jerry, one of the uh, great treats early on this season for the Mariners has been the bullpen. Uh, we, we talked uh, on the podcast uh, probably at some point during spring training how it was almost inevitable that the most improved element of your ball club this year would be the bullpen, A, because of its struggles last year, but B, also because of the new faces that you had added uh, to be in the pen this year. I mean, by any number of metrics, Jerry, this has been uh, arguably the best bullpen or one of the two or three best bullpens in the entire game. We knew that was going to happen. <laughs> the, the bullpen being the black magic of all of baseball. There you go. It can't be. I mean, it truly, you know, when you are putting a bullpen together, you know you can think through it. You can acquire names that everybody's heard of, pitchers who've performed in ways that, that you know, stamp what they're going to do moving forward, and you'll be all wrong. That's just not how it works. And, you know, it's a it, it's a little bit humbling, and you know, having having done that as a as a profession, you know, pitched in a bullpen and gone through the, the it, it can be a little up and down. You Does know? that give you any professional advantage whatsoever, having been a former reliever, to find current relievers? No, it just gives me patience in waiting it out. <laughs> but I, you know, I do think, and and I said this going into last off season when, when we when we met with the media at the end of 2020, and we talked about the the want or the need to address the bullpen. It was the understanding that it's probably not built the way you think it's built. And, and, you know, it's not about going out and getting marquee names. It's not about going out and finding you know seven guys who throw 100 miles an hour. Although we tried, it, it's about finding a mix of guys who bring something a little bit different, who each provides maybe a different pitch style or a different angle, or, you know, a, a different speeds and separations. And, and in a perfect world, right and left combination. Although I think that's a little less of a, of a need than it might have been two years ago or certainly 10 years ago. So it's, it really is a mix and match and then find the right people uh, who believe in each other because it really does become a community. A good bullpen becomes a community and now they feed off of one another and guys start, they, they start to perform above maybe expectation or ability because there is an expectation among that group of, of six or eight bullpen guys that drive one another. And that, that's been so fun to watch with this group. Feels like Will Vest is a great example of exactly what you're talking about. I mean, here's a guy who wasn't even at an alt site last year, right? And here he is this year pitching high leverage against the Dodgers and at Fenway Park against Boston and has pushed himself into a big role early on and has done really well. It's amazing how it's worked out for him and has been such a great part of your pen so far this season. He's been phenomenal. You know, I mean, the things that Will has done not it's he hasn't spent all that much time on the mound uh, not just as a professional but you know in, in his lifetime dating back through college he's he's got a lot of position player left in him he's actually one of the better athletes that we've had you know come through our 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 roster in the last handful of years as a pitcher and he's got a three pitch mix he's shown to have the courage to throw it over the plate and I think in the, what we're finding out about Will is when he gets in those moments when, when there's traffic on base, he doesn't wilt. He just rises up and, you know, he brings some energy to the situation. 
and he's not afraid to use his secondary pitches at the right times. And and I think that's a, a really important aspect is in, a, in an age where it seems like every guy that rolls out of the bullpen is throwing somewhere between 94 and 104. There's Will is able and willing to throw secondary pitches and, and use those swing and miss traits that he has. You're not going to get a lot of big league hitters to miss fastballs uh, over and over and over, but you can get them to miss your secondary weapons if they're well located. And I think Will's done a, a very good job of that in the early going. I'm curious to go back to something you said a moment ago about not having as great of a need to, in today's game as maybe five or ten years ago to match up with lefties and righties out of the bullpen. Why is that exactly? You know, the three batter minimum. Is, That's uh, as simple as that. Simple as that. Okay. You know, the three batter minimum, it's, it's nice still to have lefties in your bullpen. Uh, you know, and Anthony Mischewitz is a great example for us. But in today's time, when you're facing, you know, the, the, the three hitter minimum, it's tough to find that pocket, mostly because managers are, are astute in building their lineups. They're not giving you that pocket where you're going to hit, you know, three lefties in a row. And, and, and if you are hitting, you know, two lefties in a three-hitter mix, it's usually guys like Michael Brantley and Jordan Alvarez. When, when, <laughs> like silver slugger. Yeah, flip a coin. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you got a good enough shot with a righty or a lefty. So I do think that that has minimized the, the impact of a, a more matchup-oriented pitcher, you know, be he left or right-handed. Um, and, and it has neutralized that. But if you get a lefty who has the ability to, to get right-handers out in addition to making life more difficult on a left-handed hitter, that is as, as valuable or more valuable than it has ever been in the history of baseball, in my opinion. Can we get to a sneaky early favorite moment of the season? I have a lot of them. Uh, well, one of mine, I'm curious where this ranks on your list, is the Kendall Graveman swinging strike three, Marwin Gonzalez thigh incident at Fenway Park. Like, I have never seen that before. You maybe, probably, I don't know, have, but that was amazing. I feel like I've seen it before, but it's not. I mean, it is like perfect game rarity. You well, know and it's like the foot, right? It's not like it's not the thigh. It's like mid thigh. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I've seen one actually a little bit worse than that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's such a rare thing, and and like Kendall, you have to have wicked movement on on a almost exclusively on fastball or changeup because it's got to be a ball that's running in arm side or on that cutter slider that's to the other side of the plate where the, the movement is so big. And you know, I, I, th the first time I ever saw it play out like it did with Kendall the other day, I was watching a game in Japan, uh, of all things. And, well, and well, you know, well, of course. Of course you were. <laughs> there was a, a third baseman for the Chinichi Dragons who wound up playing a little bit in the big leagues for the Dodgers later on. You know, this was while he was in his prime. And, you know, such a common thing in, in the, the, the Japanese hitting style, it was the Sadahara O teaching, you know, kind of you know, wind up like a rubber band, get that leg kick, and then kind of simultaneously drift into your swing where, you know, you only have one foot on the ground. And, and I watched this hitter take, the, you know, take that swing against a, a sidearm reliever uh, who had just come out of Korea, who was ma making his, his uh, NPB debut. And he threw him this, this slider that seemed seemingly broke like seven feet and it just ran across and, and it hit him in a region that was very <laughs> uncomfortable for, for the normal person. But, uh, you know, I think in, in the case of Kendall Graveman, what he's been able to do since transitioning to the bullpen 
especially in developing his secondary pitches, uh, it, it has been remarkable. He's always had a great sinker. He's always been a good strike thrower. And, you know, now that great sinker is no longer 93. It's 96 and 98. Uh, and that those secondary pitches that were oftentimes not – necessarily a primary part of his approach, even as a starter. They were only occasional uh, use, used pitches. Uh, he's now using those pitches at a much higher rate, and I think it's making him an impact pitcher uh, before our eyes. And, and, boy, we needed it. Yeah, he looks um, like caged and hungry every time he takes them out. There's a certain intensity from Kendall, and you never know how it's going to translate right starter to bullpen, but he has embraced that role better than – anyone could have ever anticipated or even hoped for it, I have to think. He really has. And and in addition to embracing that role, and, and Kendall has a like a, a quiet burn to him all the time. You know, it's just it's part of him. And and he's a he's he's A he's such a good person and he's a, he's really transitioned into a leader in that bullpen. In addition to kind of taking the the, the reins in high leverage situations. What I'm most excited about is, you know, with Kendall and others in our bullpen, uh, there, is, there has been such a consistency with that group is that it's given Scott and Woody and Trent Blank, you know, the confidence to be able to use Kendall or Rafael Montero or Anthony Mishevitz against the pocket of the lineup that they think is most critical in that moment. And, and that's, that is really what you want in bullpen management is to have enough depth in your bullpen, enough impact in your bullpen to be able to use your best pitchers in, at the right time versus the right part of the lineup for that pitcher's skills. And we've been able to do that this year in a way that really we haven't been able to do in, in my tenure here. Uh, we, we've had some really good bullpens, but they were always anchored by one or two high-impact relievers, and then we were struggling to find the depth in between. This group has been so good for, for these first, you know, 30 days or so of the season that it has given us a, a lot of comfort in using the pitchers when we think it, the, the chance to maximize their impact is best. In terms of impact performances early on this season, the bullpen is probably only really rivaled by the top third of Scott's order. It has uh, carried this ball club, generally speaking, so far this season, and it's been Incredible to watch what Mitch Haniger has done after missing, uh, in essence, a season and a half. What Ty France is doing in his first full season in a Mariners uniform. And then Kyle Seeger, who, after going through a little bit of a dry spell, uh, came out of it uh, just crushing like he was over the first few weeks of the season. It's been a lot of fun to watch those three guys at the top. I really, and they're they're picking us up big time. You know, I I I think as we've gone into this this month, and obviously our performance has been very good in terms of wins and losses versus a really tough schedule, and for the most part, it's been one of those. You know, you you have a new hero every day. Some days it's one of the three pitters at the top of the lineup. Some days it's Sam Haggerty. Some days it's Evan White. Some days you know there's somebody else that chips in in that moment. But the primary, the driving force behind our run scoring has been those three guys. And, uh, and, and on any given day, when they're all doing it mm -hmm. together, that's when we look like a, a real impact postseason contending type offense. And you know, the guy that I've been most impressed with is, is Mitch Haniger, just because of how much time he's missed. And they've all three gotten off to fabulous starts. Ty France has been one of the best hitters in the league, truly since the day we acquired him uh, from the Padres last year. 
But to miss as much time as, as Mitch missed and to come back seemingly with no timing issues, his, his resiliency has been far greater than we anticipated it being. And, you know, he's gotten a couple of DH days uh, to take him off of his feet, so to speak. Uh, if that can serve as his off day and he's able to continue to bounce back the way he is, what he's doing and doing at the top of our lineup is is pretty remarkable. Uh, and, and Ty has been the steadiest bat in really wearing a Mariners uniform over the last two years, and and it continues today. You know you're going to get a, a professional AB every time he's in there. And I couldn't be more excited about the fact that Kyle Seeger is doing what he's doing in April. You know, it's like. I, I can't say like that Kyle's performance is not shocking in context of Kyle's career. You know, Kyle's had a great career as a run producer and he's always kind of, he's been there. I, and I've, I've referenced it this way in our discussions. He's like a metronome. You know, you can, you can push really hard on the pencil what he's going to do. And, and, uh, and at the end of the year, you're going to look up and like the, the old adage is he's going to have his numbers. But for him to be doing it in April is pretty atypical of Kyle. And, and I think, A, we needed that. And, and B, it's, it's been such a, a, a nice relief for our lineup because, frankly, on most days, the other two-thirds of the lineup really haven't been, been synced up or, or clicking the way we need them to be. Jerry, your points on Mitch, I think, are spot on. Given what we've seen so far from this year, it's been incredible. And given the time he's missed, he's been so productive. It was interesting to hear him talk about trying to challenge himself leading into the season in the offseason, looking for ways to fail. You know, he talked about going in the cage and scooting up five more feet. It's interesting to hear that mindset. And it worked, obviously, because it looks like he has not missed a day. I mean, credit to him. It's been really impressive. I, I can think of many ways to fail, and, and I've, <laughs> yeah, I've explored you, you them tried, all. You tried to avoid them while Mitch was trying to find them. That's right. Yeah, I can tell you where they're at. <laughs> I, I, I think that's what really is the, among the most intriguing things about Mitch, and, and this really is, is true dating back to when he joined the Mariners, you know, postseason 2016 into 17. His his focus on his training, uh, his preparation for a game, managing his, the information, whether it's an opposing pitcher or it's what's happening with his own swing, and and this really drips through to the to the performance center, the weight room, the dining room. He he's always in tune with what he's doing and looking for new challenges. And you know, I, I can't say any of that surprises me. Uh, I, I I hope he continues to look for failure if what it does is leads him to the type of success he's had this month. I think it's remarkable. Yeah, he's been amazing. And maybe we shouldn't be amazed, but he's been amazing to see what he has done. And you referenced the. Uh, the bottom two-thirds, in essence, of the lineup. Now, Kyle Lewis has just recently come back after beginning the year on the IL. It is, uh, It has been a concern at times, I'm sure, for Scott and for you to see the lack of production down there. But also, at the same time, while wanting those uh, performers to be better on a regular basis, it is maybe important to look at this through the lens of the at least current offensive environment around Major League Baseball. I do feel like we have this conversation like each of the last three Aprils around Major League Baseball when like the all the batting average around uh, all of the majors is at what would be an all-time low on base, the slug, the whole thing. But this year in particular, Jerry, I mean, it has been really tough sledding for really all lineups uh, across baseball. It is such a pitcher's game right now. It has been for a while. But, Jerry, it feels like it's going that direction more and more each year. 
And I, and I wasn't old enough to, to really remember what the, the shift from the, the, the dominant pitcher's era, you know, the, the season of the pitcher. Right. Happened to be the season I was born. But the, you know, that, that shift, I, I, I don't really remember it. I was in diapers. But, but at the end of the day, I think we're in a similar zone right now, just in how dominant pitchers are today. And somebody smart once said to me that, that context is always more important than content. And we get very hung up, especially in baseball, on, on, on discussing the content, you know, the statistics that we're so familiar with. I'm, I'm among them. I'm among the biggest offenders. It's really important to remember to bring it back into context. And in the league that we're playing in right now, where so many pitchers are throwing at such a high velocity, where, where spin on breaking balls is really spinnier than it's ever been. I mean, this balls are spinning with more rotation than they ever have. And... and you know, when you have to combat that as a and, and we're doing it with shorter starts from starters that are going harder and then handing it over to relievers who have even better stuff. And, <laughs> you know, and, and they, too, are starting to throw more strikes or create more precision, especially at the top of the strike zone. And, you know, it's such a hard time to, to, to be a hitter in this league. But like anything else, whether it's through, you know, experimental rule changes with the game, how we're going to adapt moving forward, the game will will evolve to, to meet the challenge. And my guess is that we'll find a way to bring it back to some type of competitive center. But, you know, in the, in the meantime, it really uh, brings to light the, the need to have an approach like we've pounded for, for a number of years now, which is to, to really dominate that strike zone. It, you have to stay in the strike zone to hit because if you don't stay in the strike zone to hit and you start stretching it out at today's velocities, with today's spin, with the ability to get up above that strike zone, it's nobody really hits that ball that, that gets up above the top of a strike zone. And, and even when you start talking about the top third of the zone and what would be a called strike in, in today's game, when it's happening at, at 95 to 100 miles an hour, like so many guys can do today, I, it's, I can't even imagine how difficult that is physically to pull off night after night, but I appreciate the fact that you're, you're bringing it into context because there really is, you know, it, it's a tough time and, and you just have to, you have to scrape and claw. That's why the walk is a really important thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's amazing to look at the science is really on the side of pitchers right now. And we're seeing it with the stuff from your team. I mean, the, the fastball velocity, the pitch shaping, I feel like every hitter now is going up to the plate naked. I mean, you know exactly what the hot and cold zones are. And as you mentioned, the top of the zone has been, you know, it's been so tough for hitters. Big picture, would you be in favor of moving down the strike zone moving forward? But I think in, inevitably it's going to happen, mm. you know, and that's the, whether that is the next step, I don't know. But as you know, whether it is experimental rule changes in, in some of the independent leagues or there are things that are, are being discussed at a league level, we're talking about all different ways, not necessarily to neutralize the impact of pitching, but to, to balance the field mm -hmm. in, in a competitive way and, and create a more exciting ball-and-play type of outcome. You know, that's what the fans want to see as a general rule. We like seeing the ball hit over the fence. Everybody does. Uh, you know, but seeing more balls in play, more action in, in the game is an important element uh, that, that baseball is in tune with and Major League Baseball is in tune with. And, and I do think we're going to start seeing some rule changes that, that will allow that to be, you know, whether it's 
some adjustment to, to defensive shifts. It's some adjustment to the, to the natural strike zone and the way we call it. I, I think those things will start happening again because the seesaw is a little askew. You know, uh, Right now it is very much in favor of the pitcher, and we have to find a way to give the hitter an opportunity to get back into a competitive place. We know that the numbers, and we've looked them up and we've talked about it. We've been beating the drum. Uh, for us, the real eye-opener was the White Sox series. And we've seen this top third exploited for some time now, but the White Sox did it to a criminal level. <laughs> so credit to them. <laughs> I thought it was criminal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, credit to them for having the arms to be able to pull it off. But we know that the numbers in the top third of the strike zone are it's death for a hitter, right? And these are actual strikes we're talking about. We're not talking about the ball that rises just above, but actually in the strike zone. But even if you take the strike zone as a whole, the box, right, the outline that we see on the K zone on every telecast, every single night around baseball, the area where the Marcos of the world live, all the way around the edge percentage, we see Mariners hitters uh, take those pitches, sometimes for strike three called to end in at bat. But with the plate discipline that has been preached uh, for so many years now, and it seems like is really beginning to take seed and cultivate, when you watch a game at home and you see uh, a batter take a strike three call in the lower outside corner that's a pitcher's pitch, are there instances where you're upset by that? And are there instances where you're saying, no, that's exactly the right thing to do? I think it's more B, you know, more often than not. You know, it, and this is a hard thing to do. You just have to you take your poison. Because if we start swinging at those pitches, and again, I'm going to remind that the, the first month of this season, we have played the best teams in baseball. Mm -hmm. And we have faced a variety of the best pitchers in baseball uh, and or the best stuff. You know, when you when when night after night, you're seeing guys like Rodon and May and Berrios and Urias. And we have seen a steady diet of the real deal. You know, I mean, they're, they're, this is real stuff coming at you. And I'm not even going I don't have to go back and mention the guys who've been able to go back and forth. Guys like Granke and Gaussman and Cueto who we've seen really do it, and Urquidy, who've done an unbelievable how, how, job. How do you remember every starting <laughs> pitcher that the Mariners have seen? That? I'm like, oh, yeah, they did this play. This is oh, what yeah, we do. Quito, <laughs> this is what we do. You know, but I, I think it's it's important to remember that, that, that in an era when pitchers are rewarded for pitching mm -hmm. at the top of the zone, and these guys are doing it at that type of velocity, you know, we have to even, we have to be more disciplined to sticking to the plan and, and I don't mean to be disparaging to teams, you know, that, that aren't among the best in baseball. Eventually, we're going to get to teams that don't have those guys, you know, and we have to stay with that plan. And, you know, and that's when the world will start to turn for us and or the worm will start to turn for us. And, and I think the fact that we've been able to manage this <clears throat> while sticking with our approach, while not chasing outside of the, the strike zone with any frequency, in a, in a way that represents lineups, some of the best lineups in the league. This is the way they hit. This is the way the Dodgers hit. This is the way the Twins hit. This is the way the Rays hit. You know, and and I think it's an effective way to score runs. The fact that we've been able to stay in that approach and stay disciplined. If we can manage this until we get some type of relief in our schedule, I think it's going to be beneficial to our bottom line record in the long run. We're going to get a break somewhere. While we are in Seattle or the team is on the road, uh, there's a lot going on in the Valley of the Sun, even though it seems like a year since, it felt like we were there for a year, and it feels like a year since we've been there. Uh, 
Mariners minor league spring training has been going on. A lot of activity. It didn't start till the Mariners left Arizona. Can you kind of give us just a holistic snapshot of how that's been going, what's been going on, and uh, what this a, a very odd, at least compared to usual, Mariners minor league spring training has been like? Yeah, it's, well, it's been a month later, which mm -hmm. is, you know, that by itself is unusual. We did build a, a bridge, which I think we spoke about on the last podcast we did before we left Arizona. A year ago. Yeah, seemingly. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we entered into a co-op league down in Arizona with other teams in the Valley, and we were able to build a bridge. It was about a 10-game space in between the end of Major League Camp and the start of Minor League Camp. And the guys that were going to be left in that gap were some of the best prospects in baseball. And, you know, we were able to build a 10-game schedule where those those players were still getting their innings. They were still getting their, their plate appearances and building on their reps. You know, so for, as an example, guys like Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez and Cal Raleigh, you know, they're getting three or four at-bats a day uh, against other teams' premium prospects. You know, in a time where they would have otherwise just been going through batting practice. And, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but at the end of that, when you have another 30 or 40 plate appearances, and then like we have over the course of the month of April, you go through a daily schedule where you're playing games and they're getting three or four plate appearances. You know, by the end of, of that set, you're now looking at 100, 100 and a quarter plate appearances that you would not have otherwise experienced. And, and uh, that's been our focus this spring. Typically in spring, you're trying to bring guys along at a, at a pace, mm -hmm. time it with opening day, you know, a couple of games, a day off, a couple of games, a day off. Like you see in Major League Camp, you might play five innings, and, and, and then the next time out, you're going to play seven. This go-around, we have taken our very best prospects like we did in, in last year's alt-site, like we did uh, throughout the summer camp last year. We have, and like we did in instructional league, we've given those guys the opportunity to play every day and get as many of those plate appearances as we can because those are critical to their development. Now we're wrapping up minor league camp. Uh, obviously, we're, we're, you know, we, we've hit the goal line, which is affiliate baseball is ready to start, which we're all thankful for. We'll have our four top affiliates, uh, our, our new structure, which is Modesto at low A, Everett at high A, Arkansas at AA and Tacoma at AAA. They all start, uh, and, and that's exciting as we begin May. Um, one of the things that, that I'm most encouraged by is the pitching in our organization. Like we've talked about, it's, it's a great time to be a pitcher, and it, right now it's a great time to be a stuffy pitcher in the Mariners <laughs> organization, and we've got a number of them. And it's not just the marquee names, the Gilberts and the Kirbys and the Hancocks. We have got a dozen pitchers, 15 pitchers in our system that are all, you know, in that mid to upper 90s range with really develop, quickly developing secondary stuff. I'm very excited about that and the depth in our system and can't wait to see these guys start playing this week. Can I ask you about one of those stuffy pitchers? I love talking about <laughs> stuffy pitchers. <laughs> George Kirby, so when he was drafted, it didn't walk anybody. I mean, we knew just master command, right? To see the velocity that we're seeing from down there from afar, I mean, sitting 96 to 98, touching 100, it looks like, from down there. I mean, to go with the command, that seems like a pretty good combination. It's a good combination. <laughs> you're, you're, I'll say this, Gary, you're a little light on the velocity. He's actually been up to 102, oh, 102. In, the, okay. in the spring. 
and, he, and he's doing it with with what I would say is well above average command and control. You know, uh, he's actually he walked two guys in a game the other day, which what? is what? Yeah, I I felt the same way, but he was <laughs> averaging 98 miles an hour. So I thought we're, we're going to give you a break on this one. Uh, you know, George, George, uh, when we drafted George out of Elon, you know, he would touch 95, 96, pitched at 93, 94. Uh, and he had multiple secondary pitches that he could throw for strikes. We, we've seen him really evolve in a different way. And now he's averaging 96, 97. He's touching north of 100 with his fastball. On a given day, you know, and, and we've seen this in shorter two, three inning outings, he's sitting close to his top velocity, which is you know in the upper 90s. And that's really exciting. He's learned how to maximize the, the, that part of his skill set. He's really come a long way with developing his secondaries as well. And, you know, the precision's always been there. We feel like with George, he just needs to pitch innings. And, mm -hmm. and he could be as quick to the big leagues as anybody we have in our system because of that combination of physical stuff and you know, polished command and control. It's kind of what you do in development as you wait for those things to come together. We, now we just need to see him put it together for five and six innings in the start. I'm using the term stuffy pitcher all the time now, just so you know. Yeah, they're all stuffy. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, I have a thrilling stump JD for you. Ah, I enjoy being thrilled. It yeah. is wild, it is rid ridiculous, and it is somewhat topical. So the other day... And uh, it's a certain loser for me, correct? <laughs> <laughs> just no, to I make think, sure, yeah. I think you got a good chance of this, man. I really do. It's going to be tough. There, there's a lot of answers to it, but I think you got it in you. All right, so the other day, as you well know, uh, Vlad Jr., homered not once, not twice, but three times in a game, the Blue Jays. So it got me thinking, I was just curious, like, what's the three homer history like in Blue Jays history, right? So I looked it up, guys who've hit three homers in a game in a Blue Jays uniform. And as it turns out, there have been a lot of former Mariners hit three homers in a Blue Jays uniform. So with that in mind, five, Jerry, five of the previous seven players Homer three times in a game for the Blue Jays are former Mariners. That's phenomenal. Isn't it great? Yeah, it's an amazing. Thank you for enjoying. There are yeah. a few people, Gary, Gary is definitely one of them. There are a few people who can enjoy this enjoyment as much as we do. It's, I appreciate that. I, I, know, yeah. I know you would. So I will give you, to help uh, give you the time frame, okay? The most recent of the five players was 2017. The most distant was 2009. So a Blue Jays wow. player, 09 to 17. There are five of them, Jerry, who are former Mariners. I have my and pencil. had three homer games. For, for, I have my pencil ready for you to cross off. The, the two that were not Mariners were Donaldson and Bautista, as you can imagine. Seems like yeah, two guys. Likely suspects. Uh, so I've got five guys, 09 to 17. Edwin Encarnacion. He did it twice. Uh, which is not a stunning no. thing. Right? Five years apart, by the way, which I also yeah. find amusing. He, he was awesome. Yeah. Sure. I mean, his, his run what in Toronto a, what was a tremendous. unheralded run somehow. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm going to say, could we be Jose Cruz Jr. No. on that list? No. No, that's a, that is yeah, an interesting name. Just lobbing it out yeah. there. Uh, how about Justin Smoke? Oh, see, that's a great guess. But no, it's very, very heady, wow. though. Wow. There's, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride off against it here. Well, I, one's impossible. One so is impossible. Know. Can I tell you the impossible name? Yes, please. Okay. He oh. had more home runs in this one game for the Blue Jays than he had in his Mariners career. 
John Buck. Oh, I would have never got that. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a big fan of John Buck, like the the guy. Yeah. I, I, he was I, a good dude, man. Very good guy. All right, so John Buck, who had one Mariner home run and had three in one game for the Blue Jays baseball, you know. Uh, you traded for one of these guys. I don't know. No, I, know I, I don't no. know if that narrows anything down. I know. Yeah, I know you just, traded You just made it even harder. You just made it even harder. Traded for one of these guys. From the Blue Jays? Uh, not from not from the Blue Jays. Adam Lind. Yes, Jerry. Ah, there you go. Your own transaction history. All right, so I gave you John Buck, which is fair. You have two more. Two more. Yeah. Blue Jays. One was in Former 16, Mariners. and one was in 17. 16 and 17. One of them is Canadian. Michael Saunders. Yes, Jerry. You got one left. And the other would be... I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but he once... During a day game in Seattle, smoked a pig in the parking lot. What? Yes. <laughs> while the game was going on, he DH'd. He was a DH. Got his, got his four ABs yeah. while and in between, the pig is on a rich history. And when checked out on the pig. <clears throat> That's phenomenal. Uh, Who is that? Kendris Morales. Oh, another one that we've had. Yes. I, I, I'm All a right. fan of the person wow. there as well. You know, it's, do very it's well not often that I get to actually stump JD. So, it's roughly every time we play this game. Oh, I totally but, disagree. Yeah. I completely disagree. I feel like you have a, at least a sixty percent win rate on this. There's, I, I had, I, I will say going into that, I had more confidence when you were telling me it was between 09 and seventeen, and then the the obscurity of the names. Oh, we did enjoy as we scrolled through the list. There've been a lot of three homer games for the Blue Jays. Uh, Chris Woodward. Hit a th had a three-dinger game in a Blue Jays uniform. Gary, against who? Against the Mariners. Against the Mariners. And the Mariners won the game. They said six degrees to Chris Woodward. Yeah. <laughs> the Mariners man. and the Blue Jays. Baseball. He had 13 career home runs. <laughs> can, I, can I fill you in on this because I can't get it out of my mind? One of my favorite Adam Lind moments. Uh, oh, I also I love Adam Lind moments. What's yours? So, you know, Adam was not a morning person. Okay. A, and spring training is a time for morning people. Yeah, absolutely. As, as a general well, old spring training was. Correct. I don't know about new spring training, but you're right. So old spring training, and and when Adam first joined, it was generally old spring training sure. rules. Uh, and Adam would come out every morning to do his hitting in the cage, you know, wearing a hoodie with with the hood over his head. You couldn't tell if he was among the awake or still sleeping <laughs> while he was walking. And, and it took him closer to, to midday to really start to liven up, which for, for, for Lindo was not, you know, like overwhelmingly vibrant. And we're standing at the cage. This is roughly, the, you know, that week where, where you know, hitters are take, taking their reps, getting prepared for live BP sessions. And we had the PA system out on the, the fields blaring music. That would, let, let's just say it seemed like it was coming from an eight-track player with, with somebody who had, you know, a couple of cans and a string. It, it, it was not, it was not premium sound, and the 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 music of choice, I would say, was mid-seventies classic rock, which in today's time probably isn't the you know the, the number one choice among players as they're getting ready on the backfields. And Adam Lynn comes up, he's grinding his bat, still got the hood on, still looks like he's half asleep. The eyes are two-thirds shut. And he walks up and wedges his way between Scott and I on the back of a, of a turtle, you know, the, the batting cage. And, he, and he's grinding on the bat and he's listening to the music. And he turns around to Scott. And the, roughly his, his knowledge of Scott now is not, you know, it's, it's days, you know, and not weeks, months, or years. 
And he looks at me and goes, Skip, I got it. I got it. I can see you now. 16-year-old Scott Service. His lovely girlfriend driving around Coon Valley, Wisconsin. His 1968 Camaro, <laughs> listening to a little Don't Fear the Reaper. <laughs> and then he nods and goes around and gets in the cage. And I turned around to Scott, and Scott, Scott is, is trying to grasp what Adam just said. And, and I just started howling at him because I, now every time I see Scott and his lovely wife, Jill, I think of them <laughs> cruising around. <laughs> Coon Valley in their Camaro, listening to Don't Fear the Reaper. And it's probably something that never happened in Scott's <laughs> life. But the convincing way that, that Adam broke that down, that that's how he saw Scott. It's now every time I think of Adam Lind, it's the, the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm amazed that he was uh, had that much going on upstairs at that hour in the day to be able to come up with such an elaborate backstory. Yeah, pretty pretty sharp guy. Funny. Okay. Funny and a, a, like super dry but glib, and, and a really fun guy to have on a team, I thought. That's terrific. Jerry, we have a uh, listener question for you this week, uh, which I think is a very interesting. We are talking about what was going on in Arizona. Uh, Joe Doyle wants to know about uh, a great Washingtonian, Austin Shenton, uh, who, who he says his bat is looking for real. Uh, he's getting a lot of time at first base. Do you still envision him? despite where he's been playing recently, as a potential second base or third baseman? So the way we see Austin, and this is actually it's a great question, uh, that what we're doing at, at the developmental level is trying to expose as many players to flexible defensive placements as they can, you know, or as we can. You know, there will be very few players, position players, that we just stick at one spot. This year, as, as an example, we may do that with Noel Marte because of his age. You know, we just want to see him play shortstop. Uh, our outfielders play all three. You know, Austin Shenton, like you know, uh, Tyler Keenan, who will, both of them will be uh, in Everett, we're going to flip-flop them between first and third base because, frankly, when most players get to the big leagues, you're not going to play one spot when you first break into the big leagues unless you are a premium guy. You're going to be asked to do different things, and you know it's a that's that's where we see Austin Shenton. It's probably where we see Keenan. It's where we see others in our system, and and it's why we've been so aggressive in trying to place them around the field and give them the opportunity to play a lot of positions. Because when you get to the big leagues, you're more likely to do it as Sam Haggerty or Dylan Moore have done. Uh, and there are others who are in that camp, or even like Jose Marmaleos has done, where it's a little first, it's a little left, because that gets you on the field or in the lineup, and then you let your bat do the rest. Was there a light bulb moment for you or others in your office where you decided that this was the path that you should go in terms of development? Because it doesn't seem like, this seems like a, a new concept, obviously. Yeah, it's something we've talked about really since the day you know we all arrived as the, if if you want to have versatile players mm -hmm. in an era where you're carrying more pitchers than we've ever carried, you know, uh, you know, when I when I broke into the big leagues, we had 11 man pitching staff, you know, and, and it's different today. That's it's the bullpen. Now. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and, and, and we have to be aware of the evolution of the way rosters are built. And, and in so doing and in realizing the value of guys like I just mentioned, mm -hmm. like guys like Hags and, and Demo, or looking back over this last decade, guys like Ben Zobrist, you know, that move around the field player, Marwin Gonzalez. They're, if players are prepared when they get to the big leagues to do that, they have a chance to thrive in that role. Luis Arraez with the Twins really stands out. Jorge Polanco, 
know, if we introduce it to them when they get to the big leagues, you have a much bigger chance of a face plant. And, and, and then the bat never gets to play. And Shenton can really hit. Keenan can really hit. We want to make sure that these guys have as many avenues as possible to playing time. And, you know, we don't want to fix them in one spot, but move them around the field. And we do think that, like we did last year at the alt site, we will, again, give Shenton opportunities to play at second base. We've even talked about doing it with Keenan, uh, who's, who's a bigger, stronger-bodied guy. Uh, but find out what they're capable of. I think anything short of shortstop is in the, in the cards just to see what they're capable of. As you rattled off twins names, even uh, Willings Ostadio. Oh, who's I mean, uh, yeah, yep. catches uh, third base. Uh, obviously, has pitched before as well. Probably sells hot dogs yeah, in between I mean, innings. He's doing everything, so you're right. That uh, that can definitely happen. Well, Jerry, this has been great. Uh, we, we so appreciate the time and all the insights as always. Uh, we're going to get back on a regular in-season schedule now, so uh, this will not be uh, uh, the last conversation. That's for sure. So we appreciate the time and uh, thanks for hanging out for a bit. John Buck. Ha, 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 ha.